Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Freedom is a value that we Americans prize almost above any other. It's become more evident to many of us in recent years that it's not something we ought to take for granted and can be lost without vigilantly holding on to it. Our Christian freedom in Christ is a gift from God that must be guarded with careful attention to the Word. In this, our third message from 2 Peter chapter 2, addressing false teaching that was prevalent in Peter's day, Peter would warn us against the tyranny of false freedom. Please follow along as I read from 2 Peter 2, verses 17 through 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let us pray. Father, once again I would ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So much talk these days about tyranny. We're all too aware that Russia threatens the sovereignty of the nation of Ukraine. China flexes its muscles in its claim that Taiwan should be part of the mainland. Truckers in Canada challenging their national mandates and and the government's response, many call their tactics tyrannical. We, of course, come from a nation that launched a revolutionary war against the tyrannical policies of the British crown. Of course, political tyranny is something believers need to be concerned about and take appropriate action in faith in God. But there is a graver tyranny that threatens human souls and leads to eternal death. Sin is tyrannical and opposed to the freedom that God intends for his people. False religions, false gospels, and false teachers are all forms of 
tyranny, promising freedom, and yet leave people in chains, enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Approaching this passage is a challenge because it's largely descriptive and not very directive, and a lot of the exhortations I'm going to give you are implicit in what Peter is teaching. But I believe Peter, in his third part of this section on false teaching, is helping us to overcome false teaching, first by recognizing it, secondly, helping us to resist it, and thirdly, to reclaim the hope that we profess. First, to recognize it. And there's at least three signs we see in these opening verses. And the first sign to recognize false teaching is that it's the kind of teaching that leaves us dry and empty, spiritually speaking. Peter compares the false teachers to waterless springs, mere mirages. It appears to provide water, but it's dry, it's empty. Jeremiah makes a similar comparison in Jeremiah 2 where he calls the false idols that the Israelites are craving broken, empty cisterns that can hold no water and provide no refreshment. In contrast to falsehood and idolatry, true biblical teaching is like drinking from a well that refreshes, that revives, that is an unending source Psalm 1 describes the man who delights in God's law as like a tree planted by streams of water. Jesus will say in John 7 that whoever believes in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. True teachers of God's word draw deep and refresh their listeners. False teachers come from the barren wasteland of man-centered works righteous religion. They are, as Peter says, mist driven by the storm. Unlike rain that replenishes the crops, the mist lacks anything substantial. It fails to saturate and satisfy. And so, there's nothing left for the false teachers but the gloom of utter darkness. They are condemned. And we are warned to be careful lest we are swept away with them and not let them load us down with burdens, but rather to nourish our own hearts with the riches of God's grace. The second way to recognize false teaching is their appeal to the desires of the flesh. We can recognize false teachers who boast, who entice by appealing to the desires of the flesh. Now, boasting is the opposite of humility. False teachers put confidence in the flesh, in what man can do rather than what God can do. They lack dependence upon the Lord. They appeal to that inherent human pride that that wants to contribute something to our salvation. And this is always evident in the various Christian cults and false religions of the world. Each and every one of them entice by an appeal to sensual pleasure. The religions of Islam and Mormonism ultimately appeal to man's desire for sexual paradise and the way it paints heaven in glory. It's based upon man's glory, not 
God's glory. The Bible's vision is quite different. Casting the vision of heaven in which we will enjoy pleasures that far surpass the sensual pleasures of this world, but free of all the world's corruptions. Where we will enjoy the eternal fellowship of God's people in the presence of Christ forever. Now, who are the false teachers targeting? Well, they are the new converts, the, those that are not as grounded, those who, the Scripture says here, are barely escaping those who are in error. error. Now, the cheetah rarely goes after the mature bull of the herd. Rather, he hunts down the young, the old, the lame. He goes after the easy prey. Well, likewise, the false teachers prey upon the weak-minded. Those who can't so easily recognize their false intent, who are not as able to resist their selfish ambition. False teachers feed themselves and not the flock. They bloat up their own egos by gathering followers around them. Because their souls are not satisfied in Christ, they have no intent to build up a congregation to present to Christ a beautiful bride. One of the things that, that drew my wife and myself here 19 years ago was how Westminster was a ministry centered on the Word of God. Even then, it was a large and growing congregation, and not following after any one personality, but faithfully receiving the word from Dr. Rogers and the other associate pastors. And But Dr. Rogers was and is an excellent preacher and leader. He was not seeking his own following, but to faithfully present Christ as revealed in the word. And as I look back over these last several years of transition, I think this congregation has maintained its integrity its desire and commitment to the Word and eager and faithfully receiving the Word from another excellent expositor in Dr. Walker. And so I, I commend this church as an example congregation of a church that takes the Word seriously, that will not tolerate nonsense and will not so easily fall prey to wolves in sheep's clothing who drag away the weak. But thirdly, we recognize the false teachers who promise freedom, while they themselves being slaves to corruption. Peter likely has in mind here those teachers who are perverting the teachings of Paul. Paul, of course, taught the freedom from the ceremonial law regarding circumcision and the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. But the false teachers were twisting Paul's teaching to set believers free from the moral law, to get new freedoms and merge Greco-Roman ideas uh, with biblical theology. As we look over the pages of the New Testament, we don't see God's law nullified. That though God loves us and our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, that does not mean that we can do whatever we so please and conform our ways with the culture around us. Rather, Peter and Paul and the other apostles exhort us repeatedly to live a holy life that's pleasing to God and worthy in a worthy manner of Jesus Christ. 
And so we find a, a false promise of freedom in our culture today. The gay Christian movement would abandon God's design and biblical sexual ethics to merge ideas and attitudes in our culture with biblical teaching. The health and wealth gospel ignores Scripture's teachings on God's sovereignty and the Bible's teaching on suffering that we, many of us, will likely face in this life. And there are other examples prevalent in our day in our day and age. But Scripture would call you and I to be slaves of Christ and not slaves of corruption. But we see many of these examples of corruption, and it takes many forms in a world of an epidemic of failed church leaders. We've seen pedophiles in the Catholic Church. We're familiar with Ravi Zacharias and others that are guilty of sex scandals, greed for money, Examples of numerous lead pastors of large churches removed for their abuse of their leadership. Men who crave control and power, making the ends to justify the means, refusing accountability, submitting to a plurality of elders. We've seen in recent decades numbers of young leaders in churches deconstructing their Christian faith betraying the corrupting love of the world and its approval rather than seeking God's approval. True freedom from sin is joyful slavery to God. It's ironic that in these false teachers' quest for freedom from God, the result is the slavery of sin and self. They promise freedom, but they are not free. They offer hope, but they are hopeless. They put forth a veneer of love, but are mere lovers of self. And under the pretense of the fear of God, truly are guilty of the fear of man. Religious communities can be vulnerable to wolves. If the people seek to have their ears tickled, their emotions massaged, rather than their hearts and minds challenged by the word. In God's house, felt needs must take the back seat. I've been pleased in this church over the years, and one example of this church's resilience is I remember years ago when I was in charge of our home fellowship groups, I learned that I really didn't need to micromanage them and could largely trust our leaders and not be too concerned about false teaching taking root because Westminster folks would not stand for it. And they would sound the alarm before anything got too far. And in my memory, there was only one leader we ever had asked step down over doctrinal matters, and he had the good sense to voluntarily step down, recognizing that his doctrine was no longer in accord with our standards. There's something commendable in being stubborn. That there is a kind of holy stubbornness that, that wards off the false teachings of, of our age. There is a, a healthy kind of skepticism that inoculates the people of God from the contagion of idolatrous error that runs so rampant in our culture around us. For as verse 19 goes on to say, for whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. I don't think I have to tell you that we live in 
a culture that makes an idol out of all kinds of freedoms. We see around us massive addictions to alcohol and drugs, gambling, credit card debt, and all kinds of freedoms that people are free to pursue. But each of these are our freedom that enslaves. And in that human desire to throw off the restraints of God's law, the result is not freedom, but tyranny. A tyranny of the flesh, a tyranny to the insatiable, unquenchable desire of the human heart. Carl Truman, in his recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, brilliantly traces out the last 250 years of Western thinking on this to help us understand how we got here as a culture. And he really aims to answer how a man today can claim, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. How that claim is even tenable in academia, in media, among the experts and elites of our, of our day and age. And Truman largely traces the trend beginning with the writings of the social philosophers like Rousseau and Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud and many others along the way who basically turn on God's law and morality and any type of religious and social expectation and cast it all as oppression. Anything that oppresses individuality has to go. And so we have found ourselves in this age with a kind of hyper-individualism, a modern self without constraints, which in truth is a slave to the never-ending quest for more bizarre expressions of identity. And so the consequence is that now we have those who promote a new kind of justice, not based upon objective truth, but subjective, that seeks to punish those of us who hurt other people's feelings for not accepting them for who they pretend to be. Such is the tyranny of false freedom. So we've gone through a couple of ways to help us recognize this type of false freedom and to recognize this false teaching. How do we resist it? Well, Peter doesn't offer it in a direct way. Rather, it's very indirect. But we see it in two ways in verse 20. The believers may resist false teaching through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and becoming untangled from the world. Verse 20 begins, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Peter will go on in the remainder of the passage to warn against falling back into the contamination of the world. But who is Peter talking about? Well, he's talking about the false teachers. Uh, who are the, the prime subject of warning uh, in this entire passage. And, and what concerns Peter is, is those who seem to be escaping from the defilements of the world only to fall back into it. And, and there, there seemed to be the, the kind of person in his time who somehow found something of Christianity attractive, cleaned themselves up, rid themselves of false religion and idols and various sin patterns, and, and grew in the knowledge of the Lord. 
Now, I think a picture of this kind of person is found in Acts 8 when Peter meets Simon the magician, the guy that wanted to buy the power of God with money. And he's a fitting illustration of the kind of false teachers who were motivated by something other than the glory of God and the love of God's Word. And so the capacity for us to resist false teaching is founded principally in being rooted in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we must know Him, not only know true things about Him, but know Him personally. And so fundamentally, it means embracing who Jesus is in His full deity, in His full humanity. And recognizing that throughout church history, most heresies have been centered around the person of Jesus Christ. In the history of the church, heresies largely were either rejecting that Jesus was fully God and fully man, two natures in one person, or the other major strain of errors was failing to understand what Jesus accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection, to purchase our redemption, to pay the penalty of our sin before a holy God, to, to merit for us the righteousness required to stand before God. And to help illustrate this, we look only to Islam and Mormonism, two false religions who get these doctrines wrong. Islam largely reveres Jesus as a prophet, but refuses to acknowledge him as God. He's not the Son of God, nor the Savior of the world. But in a peculiar fashion, the Quran affirms lots of things about Jesus, that he was born of a virgin, he was sinless, he performed miracles, a lot more than Muhammad did. And it's Jesus who will come to judge on the last day. In many ways, the Quran paints Jesus as more glorious than Muhammad. And many sharp believers have used the Quran to point this out to Muslims and lead many of them to faith in Jesus Christ. Mormonism affirms that Jesus is the Son of God, calls him Lord and Savior, but then goes on to undermine their orthodoxy, the apparent orthodoxy, when it becomes clear that Jesus is just one of many saviors, that those of us who are faithful and pursue righteousness and good deeds will attain to deity status and create our own world and populate that world and be a savior of that world. And I'm not making this up. This is really what they believe. But of course, a new convert is not going to know this. They are drawn in, and once they're part of the community, they are entrusted with the secrets of the Mormon church. I was edified by Xavier Shea's newsletter this past week, a supported missionary serving out in California. He was on Mormon campuses recently, ministering across Utah. And he just wrote in his letter, just, just describing the spiritual darkness. And he categorized the Mormon people as an unreached people. But I'd never thought of that before, but they certainly are inoculated and unreached and blinded by their false teaching. So Peter goes on to say that the false teachers who have escaped for a time the defilement of the world, again get entangled and are overcome. Now, in my childhood years, my father would take me fishing on occasion. 
And as I was prone to do as a young lad, I would get the line tangled up, especially when my cousin was with me and we got our lines crossed back behind the boat and my poor father sometimes spent more time untangling the lines than we did fishing. And so Christians can get tangled up in the world with its desires and that can make us ineffective. In Scripture, affirms that believers can fall into the trappings of sin, and we have the examples of Lot and even Peter himself, righteous men who fell into temptation. But the true believer is not overcome. Peter implicitly is exhorting us to untangle yourself. When you find yourself wrapped up in the world to seek the way of escape, like Frodo who with his elvish sword cut the webs of Shalob's lair. So we too must use the Word of God to cut ourselves from the tangled knots of sin and idolatry. And the true believer must cry out to God for deliverance when he finds himself in dire circumstances and seek the assistance of mature believers to help him throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles as the NIV famously translates Hebrews 12. Well, thirdly, we are called here to reclaim our hope. We've already offered two ways of resisting false teaching through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and becoming untangled by the world. But really the main thrust of Peter's argument here is to to warn believers that the false teachers are condemned. And if they are condemned, you and I must reclaim the hope of our salvation. That if we are truly found in Christ, we will remain in him and with him to the very end. As I already mentioned, believers can indeed get entangled up in in the world for a time. But it's the false teachers who get entangled and are overcome. And they are not overcome by God's glory or rescued by the hope of the gospel, but remain enslaved, undone, and overwhelmed in the hopeless despair of their sin and unbelief. The end of verse 20 says that their last state will be worse than the first. This is reminiscent of the parable of the unclean spirit who goes out of a person but then returns to find the house empty and swept and in good order. And so he goes and he finds seven other evil spirits who are more evil than him. And they break in and the last state of the person is worse than the first. And so, you know, Jesus and Peter are, you know, committing something akin to, you know, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous kind of knowledge. People who have a little bit or are acquainted with biblical teaching, even making a profession of faith, even serving in leadership, if they then turn away. If they reject Christ and the gospel, they become subject to even greater punishment, being held to a higher standard. Verse 21 says that it would be better for them to not know the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from it. And the reference here to the dog and the sow is to emphasize the point that they weren't changed. They were not transformed. They merely went back to the muck and the mire of 
the world and unbelief and idolatry. It's not that they lost their salvation. They demonstrate that they never had it. They were professors, not possessors, pretenders, behaviors, and not believers. Hebrews 6 speaks of those who are once enlightened, who tasted the goodness of God's Word, who yet still fall away because they were not attached. They were the branches that are cut off. They tasted, even chewed, but didn't swallow. They consented with their mouth, but did not believe in their hearts. And John says in 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Paul will warn Timothy that an elder must not be a recent convert lest he become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Elders and teachers of the word must be mature, tested, and grounded in the word. The Great Commission is an urgent mission, but not so reckless that we appoint men ill-prepared. And then in the echo, back to chapter 1, we seem to have this final message of keeping our calling and election. Sure, I believe that the main emphasis here from Peter is that we need to be disciples and be grounded. And of course, that means we must be changed and transformed by the gospel. No longer a dog or a sow, but to be a new creation, a new creature in Christ. And if we are to grow in our discipleship, we are also to make disciples, teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. And as we've come through this pandemic era, I've become more burdened for our young people and the need to teach them the Christian faith. And one example is that in the last year, our, many of our refugee children had very poor Sunday school attendance, so a number of us have stepped up our efforts to drive several of the refugee children to Sunday school because oftentimes their parents work late into the night and they're doing good just to get here by 10, 30, 11 o'clock for the Swahili service. But it's not just refugee children, majority culture children need to be taught, need to be grounded, need to be established in the Word. And as we go about our, our campaign to expand our building and provide more education space and discipleship space, I am more committed than ever to our need to teach and train and equip our young people in the Word of God. I know I'm preaching to the choir here with those who prioritize morning and evening worship, but challenge each of us to strengthen our commitment to be grounded, to be discipled, and to make disciples of, of others. We may be equipped to recognize and resist the dangers of false teaching that blares so loudly in a rebellious age. Well, both Peter and Paul assert that they are slaves to Christ, and it is a welcome slavery a most, to a most gracious and generous master. And it's the slavery that leads to the greatest freedom any man, any woman has ever known. Of course, the worldly man hears of us being bondservants to Christ, and he thinks of tyranny. That is the denial of his freedom, failing to recognize his own bondage to sin 
and slavish idolatry that Peter would have us faithfully preserve the precious freedom we have in Christ, holding fast to God's Word, that we might recognize false teaching, that we might resist it, and reclaim the eternal hope of the gospel that grants us salvation, a gift that can never be taken away from us. For those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, rooted and grounded Him, to live and dwell with Him forever and ever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we're grateful for the warnings of Scripture. We're grateful for the exhortations to help us be wise and faithful in a very deceitful age. And I pray that you would guard the flock, that you guard our people, that you would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that we would be wise to the ways of the world and that we would be rooted and grounded in the truth of your word. Lead us and guide us and cause us to walk in the light as you are in the light this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.